0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Well, I'd like you to take out your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 11, uh, verse 12. We're gonna be beginning our study there. While you're turning, let me just remind you a little bit of what we're doing. We are working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And last week, we officially came to the section in the Gospel of Mark that zooms in on the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus, at this point we saw, has come to the city of Bethany, which is only two miles outside of the city of Jerusalem. He was staying with some of his friends named Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus was the guy who he had just recently resurrected from the dead. And uh, as far as we could tell, what we looked at, he either he arrived on Saturday night or Saturday sometime there. And the Gospel of John tells us a large group of Jews came to see him and came to see Lazarus when he arrived. Uh, now, that large group of Jews may have all come on Saturday night, but it would have been a really busy night. Uh, some scholars believe they came on Sunday, but we don't know for sure either way. We know that immediately after that, uh, Jesus went for his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So traditionally, that's been called uh, Palm Sunday. Though we realize, as we looked at last week, some uh, scholars actually believe it could have been more accurately called Palm Monday. Either way, it doesn't matter for us. The point is, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a, a cult, the fall of a donkey, as it had been prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And that Jesus had all these people that were proclaiming him as king. Thousands of people filled with enthusiasm and celebration for Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that when he got into the city, the whole city was stirred up for Jesus. We also learned last week that how big was the city of Jerusalem? It was somewhere between one and two million people. There were thousands of people who were celebrating Jesus as he arrived in the city that day. But what was interesting is, we read last week in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus finally came to the temple, he looked around and then he just went home because it was late. And he went home with the apostles. It's like, where did the crowd go? The crowd just seemed to, to vaporize when he finally showed up in the temple. And what we learned last week is the crowd, was, they were great fans of Jesus, but they weren't actually followers of Jesus. They were empty, hollow fans that were enthusiastic for him, but weren't really committed to him. In fact, we see that because at the very end of the week, the same crowds that were cheering for him when he arrived... We're calling for his crucifixion at the very end. A very fickle, changing crowd. So last week we saw that Jesus had returned to Bethany, back to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And we pick up today when he is going to be heading back into Jerusalem again on the next day. And we're going to have what is actually called the, the, the clearing of the temple or the cleansing of the temple that we're going to study this morning. So stand out of reverence for God's word. The text we'll be reading is chapter 11, verse 12 through verse 21. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because of all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. That ends the reading of the word of God. You can be seated. This text that we're looking at this morning is another one of these things called the Markan sandwiches. Uh, these These are technically called intercalations. We've run across these before in Mark's Gospel. Mark starts one story, gets partway through it, stops, inserts another story into it, and then he goes back and finishes up with the first story that he began. And the reason he does it's it's a literary technique where these two stories are supposed to inform one another and they're supposed to help you interpret one another. So let me show you how this works. Jesus' cursing of the fig tree is a preview of God's judgment on the temple. It's a preview of God's judgment on the temple being taught by an analogy. And then right after that, we have Jesus turning over the tables of the money changers and kicking out the people who are selling animals. This is also another preview of God's judgment on the temple, but instead of being taught by an analogy, it's being taught by Jesus' action. So both of these stories are working together to talk about the preview of the coming destruction of the temple. One is by an analogy, and the other is by action. Now, since we're going to talk about the temple a little bit this morning, uh, there's some things I need to teach you about the temple. And the basic thing you need to know about the temple is the status of the temple in the Old Testament is often corresponded with the spiritual state of the people in the Old Testament. That when the people were valuing God and things were going well, the temple was going well. But when the people had fallen away from God and they had drifted away from Him, even if sacrifices were happening in the temple, it was just a matter of time until God would send judgment on His people and judgment on the temple as well. So what you see in the state of the temple is just a reflection of actually the state of the people. So let me give you some history of the temple and show you how this works together. If you're following along on the outlines, this is the first thing. What is the history of the temple? The temple actually begins all the way back in Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, God called Abraham to go up Mount Moriah and he was to take his son with him and there he was to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. Abraham and Isaac both went up the temple. Isaac was bound and put on the altar. Abraham had his knife in his hand. He had the knife in the air. and was about to drop it when God stopped him and God provided a substitute sacrifice on that mountain, a ram that was caught in the thicket, and Abraham and Isaac sacrificed that ram, and he died in Isaac's place. That's what happened on Mount Moriah. Fast forward 2,000 years, there was another lamb that died on that same mountain, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ who would die in our place. But there's a a fair amount of distance, about 2,000 years, between the very beginning of the temple, which you find with Abraham in Genesis 22, and Jesus being sacrificed on that same mountain. So let me tell you a little bit of history that goes with that. After um, Abraham and Isaac, about 900 years later, in the year 988 BC, approximately, um, God was judging his people. Judging his people for David's sin. You may remember this in the Old Testament. Dave had, David had done a census of the people, and God was punishing the people. And at that time, we find that God actually sent this message to David through the prophet Gad. It's right in your outlines. Now, the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David buys that land, he sets up an altar, he makes an, a sacrifice on that altar, and God's wrath is averted. Same location. You're noticing here, starts out with Abraham and Isaac. Now we have David making a sacrifice there and finding God's wrath is averted when he sacrifices on that mountain. And this is what we read right after that. Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offerings for Israel. This is going to be the location of the temple. Now David desires to build the temple, but God does not allow him to build the temple, though he does allow David to make preparations for the temple. It's actually Solomon, David's son, who builds the temple on that location. The temple is amazingly beautiful. It's filled with gold and all kind of ornate carvings, and by the standards of that day, it is an amazing piece of architecture. But I told you that the status of the heart of the people with God and the status of the temple with God, they sort of go together. 300 years after the temple is erected by Solomon, the heart of God's people has drifted away. Oh, are there sacrifices and offerings taking place? Yes, but they're empty. They're hollow. People are just going through the motions. They're really loving other gods and other things in this world. And so God sends judgments in the form of the Babylonians 300 years later. The Babylonians take God's people into captivity and they destroy and crush God's temple. Now God is amazingly kind because he decrees even when they go into Babylon that 70 years later he will bring a remnant back out of Babylon and he'll bring them back to the land of Israel and they can start again. And that's what happens 70 years later. Now the people, of course, one of the first things they want is to rebuild the temple, the temple that has been destroyed. And under Zerubbabel, they are able to rebuild the temple. But by the way, it is a much smaller, much less impressive temple when it is rebuilt. But at least they have a place of worship. And according to Ezra chapter 6, verse 15, they are able to rebuild the temple at this point. The year is 515 B.C. Once again, the God's people start out well, but over time, their hearts drift away. And on, they start going through more empty, superficial worship. And then something happens. Now, you don't find this in your, uh, your Bibles because the Old Testament stops at 400 B.C., The New Testament picks up at zero, or around with the birth of Christ, zero AD. There's a 400 year window in there that we don't have anything in our Bible what's going on in the history of the world. But what happens is in the year 167 BC, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes comes and he attacks Jerusalem and once again takes over the temple. Antiochus Epiphanes, he dedicates the temple of God to Zeus he sets up uh, alternative images to other gods right in the temple and he even sacrifices pigs on the altar of the temple which is an unclean animal completely disgusting to the jews now god is gracious once again about 3 years later there's a guy named judas macabeus who actually is sort of able to free things up and get the temple back under control, and a, and a modest revival of God's people takes place at that time. But once again, God's people start to slowly drift away from him. It's that constant cycle we've seen. Now, the next big thing in the temple's history picks up around the year 20 B.C. That's where a guy named Herod comes into para- power. Power. King Herod, the one we know in the Bible. He, he's actually an Idumean. He's not a Jew, but he loves building projects. So he decides to rebuild the temple. And it really what Herod's temple is, is a massive, huge overhaul of Zerubbabel's much smaller temple. Now this building of Herod's temple It goes from 20 B.C. all the way to 64 A.D. It is an 84-year building project. So already you're beginning to get an idea in your mind the sheer size of the temple that Herod will build. And we'll get into that more this morning as we look at some of those things. But while it's done in 64 A.D., only six years later, the Romans come, under Titus Vespian, who is the Roman general, can completely destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and leave not one stone on another in the year 70 A.D. And once again, why does it happen? Because of the heart of the people, the heart of the people who had actually gone so far away from God. And we're going to be studying a lot of that this morning. So let me just review sort of the history Solomon's temple is built. Things are going well for 300 years or so, but people's heart slowly drifts away. God sends the Babylonians in for judgment. They come back 70 years later. Zerubbabel builds the temple, a much smaller one. Things seem to go well for a while, but God's pe- the heart of God's people drifts away. Antiochus Epiphanes comes and sacks people and, and just sort of messes the temple up and desecrates it. Then there's a revival. Things seem to go well. Herod's temple is built, this massive building that we're going to see this morning. But the heart of God's people is far away. And God sends Titus Vespian, who destroys the temple once and for all. And another one has never been rebuilt. So that's a little overview of the history of the temple. Now, as we get into our text this morning, The first part of our text talks about the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Herod's temple, by way of analogy. The next part will talk about the destruction of Herod's temple by way of action, the action that Jesus takes. So let's go ahead and look at what our text says about these things. First of all, we see the fig tree was cursed. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, He was hungry. So Jesus and his disciples have been staying, we saw, at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus that is in this city of Bethany. It's the next day. He's going to head into Jerusalem, and it seems like Jesus missed breakfast. Now, why does Jesus miss breakfast? It's probably not because Mary and Martha are unwilling to cook for him. Here's my guess. We've seen in this gospel that Jesus' custom is that he gets up early, gets away from everyone else, and he prays. So my guess is he's been having a long prayer meeting that morning. I mean, it is the last week of his life. Sounds like an important time to do some extra prayer. Comes back, time to leave for Jerusalem. He doesn't have time for breakfast, and he's heading out for breakfast out the door. There is no McDonald's on the side of the road. There are no Chick-fil-A's to stop at. He's a very hungry guy who skipped his breakfast. And then we read, And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Right away, this gets confusing. Wait a minute, Jesus, why would you be upset with a fig tree that has nothing but leaves because it's not the season for figs? And then in the next verse, Jesus is so upset at this tree, he curses this fig tree. Like, Jesus, what do you have against fig trees? Why are you so angry at them? Is this all because you just didn't get breakfast? Well, here's what I'd like to tell you. When you're studying the Bible, you will occasionally run across things that look like they make absolutely no sense. You have two ways to handle that. One is to say that the writers of the Bible are complete nutcases, and they don't know what they're talking about. The other thing is to say, well, maybe there's something going on here that I just don't understand. And maybe I should do a little research, and all of a sudden, things will make obvious sense. So I figured I couldn't take the first option and still be your pastor, so I better do some research and see what's going on here. And I learned a lot about fig trees, and then all of a sudden, everything made sense. When it comes to fig trees, the fruit comes first, the leaves come second. When it comes to fig trees, the fruit comes first, the leaves come second. Around March or April, what happens is spring comes, and the first thing the fig trees do is they begin to pr- produce small figs on last year's shoots. And after these small figs have been, begun to be sprouted, then the leaves grow. These are called the early figs. Let me show you a picture of this. That's a fig tree. You can see the figs already starting to grow while the leaves are still just coming out. Now, go ahead and show me the next picture there, Jeremy. This is early figs on a fig tree. They're figs growing on last year's shoots. So in other words, when Jesus sees a tree in full leaf, he should be able to find the early figs which come in March and April already on last year's stems. Then go ahead and take that off, Jeremy. The other thing to realize is the fig tree produces new shoots during the year while it's in leaf. And then you have another crop called the latter figs which actually is harvested between August and October. The latter crop produces a much larger quantity of figs, and that is usually the fig tree season when they are harvested. Go ahead, Jeremy. Uh, That would be an early fig, by the way, so you can see what they look like. Now, Jeremy, go ahead, Jeremy, show me the next one. That would be the latter figs. You can see they're much juicier, they're much thicker, end-of-season figs. Thank you, Jeremy. Now, remember, we learned that this is all taking place this final week during the week of Passover. Passover is in the spring. So, Jesus comes to a fig tree, he sees it in full leaf. He knows, therefore, he should be able to expect to find the early figs growing on the tree. But he comes and he finds a tree that is in full leaf with absolutely no figs on it. There is something completely wrong. It's got all the leaves, but it doesn't have any of the fruit coming on it. And Jesus' response is this. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So why does he curse the fig tree? Now, some people may point out that the fig tree often represents Israel in the scriptures, and that is true. And this is sort of an analogy for what's going to go on in the temple. But uh, the issue is the tree looked good, but it actually was proving unfruitful. Now, another thing just to mention to you, I said Jesus curses the fig tree. Some of you may get hung up on that and say, well, this is too strong of the language. Does Jesus really curse something? Uh, and, well, I'm just going to say that J- Peter said that Jesus cursed the fig tree. So I'm going to go with biblical language on this. If you look at this, at the very end, it says this, Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So, yes, Jesus does curse this tree. So, here's the key thing to understand with this fig tree. The fig tree has the appearance of fruit, but it doesn't have the reality of fruit. So, at the end of the day, this tree is completely and totally useless. And that is a good illustration of the temple. Because the temple, as we're going to see, looks incredibly impressive from the outside. But it's all show, the temple has no true spiritual fruit being produced. Just as Jesus cursed and destroyed the fig tree because it looked good on the outside but was completely unfruitful, Jesus will curse and destroy the temple because it looks good, but it is ultimately completely unfruitful. By the way, this idea of looking good on the outside, but totally being really unfruitful, uh, this theme actually goes through a lot of Jesus' judgment on the temple and on the Israelites, and on the Israelites' leaders at this point. This cursing of the fig tree that we're studying in Mark, it actually has a parallel account in Matthew, in Matthew 21. And right after that, where it's talking about the difference between what's on the outside and what's on the inside, Jesus goes after the leaders of Israel. And that's the exact same theme he hammers. You guys are all concerned with looking good on the outside but you guys are rotten fruit on the inside. Let me show you some examples of what goes on in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Or a little later. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So what we have is Jesus is gonna say to the spiritual leaders, you look good on the outside, but you are rotten on the inside. Same thing with the temple. This temple looks incredibly spiritually impressive on the outside, but in reality it is completely unfruitful, doing no spiritual good for people. As we continue in the Gospel of Mark, when we get to Mark chapter 13, Jesus will be giving a number of direct predictions on what will happen and when will it happen that this temple will be destroyed. Incidentally, while we're at it, this uh, parable of the fig tree that we just studied, it probably should also be tied with a parable of another fig tree that was actually recorded in the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to read it for you, and you'll see how these two tie together. They're both parables about unfruitful fig trees that are all leaves but no fruits. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, "Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I have found, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground?" And he answered him, "Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year." well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So here we have in this parable another fruitless fig tree that is being given one last chance to be fruitful. If it will not be fruitful, it'll be destroyed. That's a picture of what's happening to God's people and God's temple. Here in the particular parable we're looking at right now, what we have is Jesus says it's time to destroy the fig tree because it has proven unfruitful. It looks great on the outside, it's all leafy green, but there's no fruit coming from it at all. So we've talked about the destruction of the temple, first by analogy. Now let's go into the middle of the sandwich and look how Jesus does the same thing and talks about it by action. The temple was judged. And they came to Jerusalem, and entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Okay, before we get into the details of this, you have to understand the significance of this in the theme that we've been talking about. What is Herod's temple like? I told you that Solomon's temple was incredibly beautiful. It was one of the wonders of the world in its day. When it was destroyed, it was replaced by Zerubbabel's temple, which was actually much smaller and less impressive. Herod's temple is so big, and so huge, and so ornate, it, make, it just dwarfs Solomon's original temple. Let me show you what I mean. Go ahead and get the comparison up there. That is Solomon's temple size on the left. That is Herod's temple on the right. You see how much larger Herod's temple is than Solomon's temple? Now, here's where it gets interesting. You think that is impressive? That's only the temple proper. That doesn't include the temple complex. Go ahead and give us a size comparison chart. Look on the right-hand side. The temp- that little white sort of boxy thing there, temple proper, that's what we just saw on the previous slide. The actual size of the temple complex is huge. You can see over there, I circled the size of a U.S. football field to show you by comparison here. The temple complex covers 35 acres of space for the building. When you're talking about the size of a building in terms of acres, you know it is a huge building. Uh, now, while it was impressive in size, Herod's temple was also incredibly impressive in looks. Go ahead and thank you, Jerry, for taking that down. Um, Josephus describes his temple this way. He says, you know, the temple was built mostly of white marble. It was covered in many places with gold. Josephus says that when travelers were coming to Jerusalem and the sun was shining, they couldn't look directly at the temple because the brilliance of the sun shining off of it was too much for their eyes with the sun shining off the white marble and the gold. That shows you what kind of incredible brilliance this temple has. Now, Jeremy, give me the next slide. Uh, I'm shining through, okay. No, I'm not shining through. Okay, this gives you an idea of what it would look like. You saw Herod's temple was in the dead center there. The courtyard of the Gentiles that we're going to spend a fair amount of uh, time looking at today, that is that large patio area there. And then the covered areas on the end is known as um, Solomon's portico. Now, to give you—you you see they have little columns supporting the roof there? To give you an idea of the size of those columns, Josephus says that it took three men stretching their arms out end to end to be able to wrap around the base of one of those and touch. So it is monstrously huge. In addition, while you're looking at that, let me just tell you about how they have this set up. In the center, in the temple, obviously is the Holy of Holies, this place where supposedly God would dwell. That is the highest place in the temple. Then you would actually physically go down in elevation to the next area, which was the priest's area, where they would offer additional sacrifices. Then you'd physically go down again into the area of the men, which was even larger but lower. Then you'd go down again even lower to what was called the Courtyard of the Women. So you can see how the center with the Holy of Holies is like a mountain going up higher. And as you go down, it went lower. And finally, you ended up on this area called the Courtyard of the Gentiles, which was this large patio-type area where... um, You had everybody else could go. Now, this massive court of the Gentiles, this was a place where the nations were allowed to come. This is a place where they were to be able to pray to God. They were to be able to come and learn about God. Remember, at this time, things are very different than they are now. In most communities, you can find a church on many corners. People want to go and learn about God and they want to learn about Jesus. You sort of just go to a church and you'd, people could be able to tell you about Jesus and tell you the truth of God. It wasn't that way at this time. The only place that you could really go to learn about God was the temple for sure if you were a Gentile. The only place you could go to worship God would be this temple in this courtyard area of the Gentiles. That is your one-stop shop if you are a Gentile. Now, um, what became interesting is even though there's this huge courtyard of the Gentiles that should be set aside for the people of the nations of the world to be able to come and worship God and learn about God, God's people were not really excited about that. They don't have any love for the Gentiles. In fact, they want to get rid of the Gentiles. Jeremy, could you put that picture of Herod's temple back up there for a brief moment? Thank you. You can sort of see, uh, if you look on the outside where you go down the steps, then there's a small wall there with some spaces in it. Uh, that was a dividing wall. And there was a sign on that wall that read this it says, if you are, essentially it read this way. It says, oh, actually I wrote it down here. I'll read the exact words. No foreigner is allowed beyond this point. If anyone is apprehended beyond this point, he has himself to blame for his own death. Not visitor friendly. In other words, the Jews are like, if you are a Gentile, don't you dare get any closer than that wall to our temple. So the Jews aren't welcoming the Gentiles in and teaching them about God. They're actually trying to cut off the Gentiles and get them away from God. And what we find is that the time that this is taking place in this massive courtyard of the Gentiles that should be set aside for them to approach God and to worship God and learn about God, it had been turned into a marketplace You want to picture it? The courtyard of the Gentiles looked like the Clay County Fair that was actually taking place. You could purchase animals there. You could exchange money there. The Sadducees who were in charge of the temple proper oversaw this courtyard and they had struck a deal with the animal merchants and the money changers allowing them to sell animals and exchange money in the courtyard of the Gentiles as long as they paid a high-priced fee to these Sadducees. So as I did some research on this I, I was able to learn, now originally you could buy animals But the place you bought animals was actually more outside of town. It was by the Mount of Olives. But it was under the current high priest at this time, a man named Caiaphas, that he had made the decision to take extra financial profit and to allow the sellers of animals into the courtyard of the Gentiles for a fee. Well, not only did he make extra money... (laughs) What happened to the ability of the Gentiles to come? What happened to the ability of the Gentiles to worship? And the one place on the planet where Gentiles could worship God and learn about God was now taken away. In addition, what was being sold in that marketplace in the court of the Gentiles was a way of fleecing the people out of their money and their their cash. If you brought a lamb from home and you expected to use that in the sacrifices, uh, there was a priest who had to inspect the lamb you brought from the outside. And if the priest said it wasn't any good, you couldn't argue with him. You just had to accept what he said and then you'd be forced to buy one of the pre-certified lambs that was being sold there. And it was way overpriced, like maybe three times as high as what you would have brought from home in the way of costs. The best way you can understand this is that you've ever gone to a sports stadium and then you go to the concession stand and they charge $7.50 for a small pop. That's sort of what's going on here. The prices are way jacked up, and they have you captive because you have no place else to go to get your sacrifices. And who's making all the profit? The religious leaders who are lining their pockets. The other thing that was going on here was the money changers. Why would there be money changers? There was something called the temple tax that every male over the age of 20 needed to pay uh, during the Passover. But the key was that the temple only accepted payment in something called the Tyrenian shekel, also known as the silver drachma. And that's the only way you could give your temple tax. And people came from all over the world. They came from all different kinds of money and currencies in their pocket, and so they'd set up the money Exchangers here in the courtyard of the Gentiles, so you could change your money and they would give you the right money. But once again, it was way overpriced in the rate of exchange. As I did some research on this, some historians believe it was a 25% markup on the money exchangers that were in the courtyard of the Gentiles versus other places. So, once again, you can see how this is all crooks. This is all shams. Now, couple this with what we just learned about the fig tree. This temple, doesn't it look impressive? 35-acre complex, built with white marble, covered in gold. Oh, it looks all leafy green, but how fruitful is it? It had turned into a tourist attraction, an overpriced trap where people were ripped off in the name of God. Instead of the courtyard of the Gentiles being a place where the nations came to pray and learn about God, it had been turned into a summer carnival. Does anybody understand why Jesus might be a little upset here? Oh, yeah. In John chapter 2, we know the first time at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he cleansed out the temple. At that time, the the Gospel of John, John writes that this actually fulfilled Psalm 69, verse 9, which says, Zeal for your house will consume ye, consumed me. In other words, Jesus was really protective of the temple, of his father's house. And now here we see that zeal for his father's house consumes him once again. Jesus goes on the, defense, the offensive and he begins to drive out the animal sellers out of the courtyard of the Gentiles. Now I begin trying to picture this. What would it be like? What would a person have to be like to have one person be so emotional and yet forceful in their personality to drive out of that huge courtyard people who have animals and money. This is what I call Jesus gone wild. I think he is really creating quite a ruckus because people won't leave easily. You only leave if you're afraid. Like if somebody's going bananas. I can picture Jesus grabbing these tables of money and throwing them in the air and money going everywhere and people are running. I like, Get away from this guy. He's insane. We can't even get around him to stop him. Zeal for his house will consume him. Now, I personally don't believe Jesus cleared all 35 acres of the temple complex, but I do believe he probably cleared a large enough area to make a very significant impression. And then we read this. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. We've already seen he's kicked out the buyers and sellers in the courtyard, at least a good section of them. What does this have to do with it? Here's what happens. When you have a 35-acre complex with open sides and you're traveling from one side of the city to the other, the easiest way to get to the other side of the city is take a shortcut. Cut right through the temple properties. Because otherwise you have to take all the extra time to go around it. And here's what people were thinking. You know, if our leaders treat this courtyard of the Gentiles as a common place, as no big deal, where you can sell things here, maybe we can walk through things here. So instead of becoming a place for Gentiles to pray and worship, it'd become like a a shortcut, a highway for them to get to the other side of the city and Jesus would not tolerate it. And then it says this, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. God's plan was for his people to be a light to the nations and to reach The world. That was always God's plan. Let me read for you Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 7, which is actually where this quote comes from that Jesus said. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. God's plan was always for his people to be a light to the nations around them. God's plan is that the people the nations around the Jews would be drawn to God through His people and through His house. But God's temple, while it looked leafy green, had proven completely fruitless in this manner. While it looked good, all white and gold and marble and huge, it was not doing any good. Instead of reaching out to the nations, it was excluding the people of the nations. And by the way, the idea that God's house was always to be a place where the, uh, the nations of the world would feel welcome and they could meet him, that's always been God's vision. All the way back from Solomon's temple, that was God's vision. Let me show you what Solomon prayed when he dedicated his temple. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Now it's always been God's plan that the people of the world would be drawn to him as they watched his people in action. The people of the world would learn about him through people like you and me, and that the people of the world would be welcome in God's house, not excluded from it. I have a question for you. Do you think today, in the church, we could ever fall into the same sin as it was happening in Jesus' day in the temple? Do you think today in the church we could ever be... mm, Focused on ourselves. Today in the church, we could sometimes be unwelcoming to the world around us that so desperately needs Him. I think we can. I think it's very easy for us in the church to have a heart that's focused on ourselves and not a heart that's focused on the lost world around us. And that the God's house should be a welcoming place for them where they could hear the gospel. From our lips here in this house, in a way that they can understand. Let me connect here at the last part of the passage. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They were afraid of Jesus after the triumphal entry. Now they're really afraid of Jesus because he's gone after their temple. And then it says in verse 19, and when evening came, they went out of the city. Now let's finish the sandwich. And a cursed fig tree is a dead fig tree. And they passed by it in the morning and saw the fig tree withered to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Peter puts the pieces together. Jesus cursed the fig tree. It immediately withered and died, and Jesus also cursed the temple. It was only a matter of time, until it too would be withered and died. And 40 years later, Titus Vespian came into Jerusalem and didn't leave one stone upon another, and it has never, ever been rebuilt. Now, how does this apply to us? I have two quick areas of application one is to us personally and the other is to us corporately here's the personal application I have a responsibility to bear fruit not just grow leaves I have a responsibility to bear fruit with my lives not just grow leaves with my life I can't just look good for God I have to be someone who does good for God Well, how do we do that? How do we move from just looking good to actually doing good? Let me give you two quick examples. God has given each of us spiritual gifts and natural talents. We are fruitful when we use them instead of sit upon them. God doesn't want us to just look good. He wants us to do practical good and spiritual good for other people around us. Let me give you one quick example we have on wednesday night we have an awana program and there's these guys called the awana game guys and they work on the games for awana and you know they decided they would go sort of above and beyond the call of duty this week and they decided to lay out a maze like a human-sized pac-man maze in the gym using tables and chairs and styrofoam and the kids Loved it. Did you guys see that this week? Anybody? Oh, it was great. But you know what my favorite part was? My favorite part was watching the kid and the one kid that goes, I love church. He loves to come hear about God, but he knows that church is a good place. And it all happened because three guys decide not just to be look green and leafy, but actually to do bear some fruit and put a little extra effort into the week. Not just looking good, but doing good. Let me give you this corporately. God calls his people to have a heart of love for those who do not know him. The Jewish leaders, they had cut off the Gentiles. God wants us to not be people that cut off the outside world, He wants us to intentionally be a church that welcomes the outside world. That the outside world could be able to come here into Crosswinds and find the gospel clearly explained in a way that is relevant to them. That's the vision that God has always had for his people and his house. And may we be the same. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.